This is episode 50 of the History of Podcast. My name is Robert, and today's episode is the history of the persistence of memory. Glad you're tuning in, and guess what? I might be sitting in your speaker right now. Just open it up and you might find a two-inch tall me. I don't advise it though, unless you know how to put your speaker back together. You might just have to take my word for it. But either way, I'm happy you're here. If this is the first episode you're listening to, welcome aboard. It won't be your last, I promise. And something I do every time is the egg carton count. And today's egg carton count is 59. Uh, so I have 59 egg cartons. What that means is I have 59 egg cartons on the walls of my closet studio to provide a warmer, more real sound, just like I'm sitting in your speaker right now. Let's talk about the persistence of memory. It's a painting only nine and a half by 13 inches long, painted by Salvador Dali in 1931. And I should start by examining the painting itself. To get the most out of this, you might want to look up a picture of the painting for reference, but if you can't or don't want to, I get that too. I probably wouldn't look it up if I were listening myself, so I'll just try to do my best with audio. I will say though that you've probably seen the painting before, but you may not recognize the name, so here we go. I'll describe it and see if you recognize it based on the description. The most memorable part of the painting, you could say the most persistently memorable, is three floppy clocks. One is on this strange, vague, sleeping thing. I'll get back to that in a minute. One is on a box, and the third is hanging uh, on a branch coming off the box. The setting seems late afternoon, and it's all on an empty beach with still waters in the distance. I won't get into all the other details of the painting, but I will note that there's a fourth orange clock covered in ants. And from what we know of Salvador Dali's other paintings, the ants represent decay, which brings us back to the floppy clocks. A lot of people would think they represent Einstein's general theory of relativity, which was published just a few years earlier. But when asked in an interview what inspired him, Salvador Dali said it was just a piece of soft cheese melting in the sun, which he thought looks cool, I guess. In the center of the painting is this sleeping form uh, I mentioned earlier that kind of looks like a blanket, kind of looks like a curled up duck, but also kind of looks like a nose and closed eye. It's hard to tell. It's like the picture of the dress where some people saw black and blue and some people saw gold and white. That was a meme from like, I don't know, 2013. Don't quote me on that number, but you'd have to see the painting to know what I'm talking about. The whole painting is like something you would see in a dream, and it's partly because Dolly was hallucinating while he painted it. And this part was intentional. He actually took hallucinogens in order to access his unfiltered subconscious thoughts, and this is what gave him his touch, and really defined his style of surrealism, which I'll get back to in a moment. According to Dali, quote, I am the first to be surprised and often terrified by the images I see appear upon my canvas. I register without choice and with all possible exactitude the dictates of my subconscious, my dreams. Dali was driven by his own craziness, and he once said, quote, The only difference between a madman and me is that I am not mad. He grew up in Figure Spain during the World War I era and really had a natural artistic talent since he was a kid. Dahlia was put in drawing school by his parents in 1916 when he was 12, but as you can imagine, being the kind of artist he was, he didn't pay much attention during class and preferred to do things by his own rules. When he was 18, he started at the Academia de San Fernando in Madrid, and Dahlia was suspended only a year later when he was accused of starting a riot and was believed to be a fascist. 
He constantly reaffirmed that he wouldn't take a political stance, but several critics believe Dolly's works suggest otherwise. So he was suspended from college, but he came back in 1926. This didn't last long, though, because Dolly was never allowed to come back to college after saying the professors weren't good enough for him. That's kind of a deal breaker to say that. So this guy's an egomaniac, and for a couple years after being expelled, he started traveling to Paris for inspiration. He was able to meet with Pablo Picasso, who had a big influence on him, which can be seen in some of Dolly's works in the late 1920s, and he experimented with different art uh, ideologies such as cubism, futurism, and especially surrealism, all styles and ideas leading up to the persistence of memory in 1931. And I'd like to focus on surrealism for a moment, because this was a big movement in art, and Salvador Dali and the persistence of memory became the face of that movement. Surrealism goes back to a man named Sigmund Freud. He was a neurologist from Australia, and he was especially interested in what we could extract from the subconscious through hypnosis and hallucination. And the official beginning of the Surrealist movement was in 1924, when André Breton published the Surrealist Manifesto. The whole Surrealist thesis, you could say, was that the subconscious rules the brain and rules our perception of reality. And there's a lot more that we're thinking that we don't realize we're thinking. And even though the official Surrealist movement has since ended, it remains an undertone in just about every work of modern art today. There were definitely Surrealist artists before Dolly, like Max Ernst and Joan Miro in the 1920s, but 1931 was when Salvador Dali became the face of Surrealism, officially really, uh, with the persistence of memory. That's the, the most famous painting of the movement. The painting first premiered at Julian Levy Gallery in 1932. Then it was donated to the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1934. The painting has been there ever since, and it's still famous for its melting clocks. But the persistence of memory was not the last of Dolly's melting clocks. In 1954, he created the disintegration of the persistence of memory, which is reminiscent of the original, but with a few changes, like half the painting looks like it's underwater. Uh, also, instead of a barren ground, there's an array of separated bricks. It's really weird. The tree is disconnected, and there's a strange fish in place of the sleeping form thing. You'd have to see it to really understand it, uh, What really what I'm describing, because this painting is something else. And being a recreation, the disintegration version was obviously not as popular as the original, but even that wasn't the end of the floppy clocks. In the 80s, Dolly created three sculptures called Dance of Time 1, Dance of Time 2, and you guessed it, Dance of Time 3. They were again reminiscent of the melting clocks, and each was a different take on the form of the clock. My personal favorite is Dance of Time 1. Uh, and note that Dolly was nearly 80 years old at this time, and he would die only five years after they were cast in 1984. He left a legacy for sure, maybe not one I would aspire to, but it's definitely there. Today, the persistence of memory has been referenced all over pop culture, as you can imagine, and the original is still in the New York Museum of Modern Art, if you'd like to go see it in person. And, you know, there's something about having an original painting right before your eyes, but that's the subject of another day. Let me know if you'd like another uh, art history episode sometime. I really had fun with this one. As always, I'm Robert Lakatosh, and I would like to personally thank you for staying with me for the last eight minutes, which have been just a little snippet in my effort to help you never stop learning. Thank you. 
I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, don't listen to the next episode just yet. I'd appreciate if you could take just 10 seconds to rate or write a review for The History Of. It really does make the episodes better. And if you think you have a friend who might enjoy this podcast, tell them about The History Of, their new favorite podcast, and you might just make their day. I'd like to thank you all for your gracious, loyal support, and until the next one, I'm Robert Lakatosh. Thanks for listening.